I'm Colin. And I'm Megan. And this is Pet Sitter Sitter Confessional, Confessional, an open and honest discussion about life as a pet sitter. Brought to you by Time to Pet. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back. Pack walks are growing in popularity across the country as more and more people are realizing that they have such wonderful benefits for their dogs. So how do you go about offering those? What kind of things should you consider? Are you going to be adventurous enough to offer off-leash pack walks? Well, today we are so fortunate to have Jess Bay, owner of School for Dog Walkers, on to discuss all of those topics and so much more. After 20 years in the industry, she has a lot of information to share with us, and her passion is for helping dog walkers get off the ground and have a successful business. So let's get started. Most people call me Jess, um, but my name's Jessica Bay, and I run School for Dog Walkers, which is an online membership program where I help force-free dog lovers start and grow their own dog walking businesses. And my focus is on um, solo pack walkers, but I do help all different kinds of dog walkers. Um, I'm also own and operate my own off-leash pack hiking company part-time. It used to be full-time, but I've cut back part-time so that I can do the online business coaching. And I also am a pet photographer. I've kind of dabbled in everything in the pet industry. And I've been working in the pet industry for more than 20 years now. Where does all of that passion come from? Yeah, I mean, similar to most people, I grew up with dogs. My mom loved St. Bernard's. Uh, so I grew up with St. Bernard, who was the same age as me from the time I was born. And uh, I remember going to her obedience classes when I was little, probably eight or nine. And just none of the my siblings wanted to go, but I would just go and watch the obedience classes for fun. And then eventually, as I got older, I really wanted a dog of my own. So I made like charts and spreadsheets to show my mom how I could take care of a dog and <laughs> raise money babysitting. Um, but she said, no, we have a family dog. No, no, you can't do it. Um, and then eventually a few years later, I found out about, uh, volunteer puppy raising to raise service dogs for people with disabilities. And I ended up talking her into, let me do that. (laughs) Um, because you don't actually keep the dog unless they are released from the program. So then I really got into learning more about dog training, uh, because you train the dog for about a year and a half to two years. Um, and my dog didn't make it, so I got to keep her. (laughs) So it worked out great for me in that way. (laughs) So that's so cool. And and I like the I can just envision you standing there and giving this big presentation about the pros and and how you're going to fit in with everything and get and take care of the dog. Yeah, totally, totally. I had spreadsheets about how I was going to pay for the the vaccinations and stuff, but it did not work on my mom. So so do you have any dogs of your own currently? Yeah, I do. I have two beagles, um, Splash and Cricket. Uh, Splash is turning 11 this weekend, actually, and Cricket is eight. They're my babies. I love them. They're totally spoiled. Beagles is kind of a, I, I don't see a lot of people having beagles in their lives. What specifically about them, you know, drew, drew you to that breed? Uh, well, I started with um, labs because I was raising service dogs mm-hmm. and I just wanted something a little bit smaller that had the happy-go-lucky personality and easy wash and wear coat. Um, and beagles kind of fit the bill. They are a lot more challenging, I have to say, than labs. I had no idea <laughs> when I got Flash as a puppy, how much energy she had. It was way above and beyond what a lab has. I mean, she would run circles in the backyard. And that was after going to work with me for two pack hikes. So um, they're definitely a handful and a lot, but um, I love them and they fit my lifestyle because I'm very active. I do lots of hikes and um, cricket comes to work with me a lot. So works well. Yeah. Now, your initial experience in pet care was with 
kennels and boarding facilities. So what made you make that switch to doing pack walks and, and off the leash kind of walks? Yeah. Um, so I started a kennel when I was really young and still in school. And um, it was just a job I saw that was available and I love dogs. So I took it. And then I eventually moved up to being a staff manager um, and running a dog daycare facility and was in charge of hiring and training all the new staff, um, which I loved hiring and training people, but I did not love the management aspect of the job. And also when you work at a daycare or a kennel, you have to work weekends, you have to week, work holidays. And when you're a manager, um, if someone calls in sick, you don't have enough staff, sometimes you have to sleep at work. Uh, so that gets old after a few years. <laughs> so I was looking for something else to do. And there was actually um, a dog walker that would come in and she would, well, technically a dog walker, but she, it was more like a play group. She would rent one of our play yards and bring her dogs in there. And I kind of was doing the math. I'm like, oh, wait, I could make more money probably doing that. I wouldn't have to work 50 plus hours a week on a salary. Uh, I could be closed on weekends and holidays. And I had nine years experience at that point managing play groups because all the kennels and daycares I had worked at had been focused on group play. So I had tons of experience and I had gone through the puppy raising experience. So I had lots of dog handling and training experience. I also volunteered um, teaching obedience classes while I was puppy raising. So I had lots of experience just working with groups of dogs and I wanted to play to my strengths. And it's just so fun to be able to watch dogs play and work with them on their social interactions. Just like, like, for example, I love to take my packs out to the beach and just watch them run around at the beach. Like, what's more fun than, like, going out on a nice day and getting paid to watch dogs run and play? It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it is really neat to see them work in a pack and how all those personalities start clicking. But I know that um, I, I think you do some some screening beforehand to make sure that they all will, will mesh. So what does that process look like? And, and how do you make sure that's just not uh, utter chaos? Yeah, right. Absolutely. So I have um, a very in-depth screening process that I do with all applicants for my pack walks. Um, and it starts with an online application. And I ask basic questions to just weed out dogs that I know are not going to be a good fit at all. So for example, I don't take dogs that have a history of aggression with other dogs or with people. And then I ask about their social skills. Are they good with, you know, all different breeds of dogs, all different sizes of dogs? All that kind of information is really important when you're going to be matching dogs together. Um, for example, it's really hard to take like a young puppy in group with adult dogs. A lot of adult dogs don't appreciate that. So just knowing like the dogs that you have existing and their temperaments and then matching the new dog takes a lot of screening. And so after the online application, I also do an in-person meet and greet, which right now because of COVID, I am screening them over the phone. And that's actually working really well, surprisingly. But I asked tons of information about the dog's background, everything from have they ridden in the car with other dogs before? What kind of experience do they have interacting with other dogs? For example, do they go to dog parks or kennels or daycares? Have they gone with another pack walker before? Um, all these behavioral history questions, just so I get a really good idea of what this dog's past behavior is. And I can better guess whether or not this dog is going to be a good fit for the pack that I have. Um, and the main things are making sure the dog is non-aggressive, not reactive, and will be social and friendly with other dogs. And then once we go through all of that and the dog sounds like a good fit, then I will take the dog on a trial basis to ensure it's a good fit for everyone. So the client gets to kind of try out the service and I make it clear to the client that we're going to make sure 
that their dog enjoys going out for the hikes with me and is fitting in well with the other dogs. Because I never want to put a dog into a situation where they're unhappy with the pack walks and pack walks aren't for every single dog. Um, But for social dogs to enjoy going out with other dogs, it's a great fit. Right. Well, and what I'm interested in and that aspect is, is what is that initial introduction of the new dog to the established pack look like? What kind of things are you watching for and, and how do you work through that process? Yeah. So on the dog's first day, I actually will, instead of going and picking up a dog and putting it into a car with, you know, I walk up to six dogs at a time. So I don't want to throw a new dog in there with, you know, four to six dogs that come up and are like, Hey, who are you in a tight confined space? Um, which can be really threatening. So first I've done all the screening. So I have a good idea that the dog is going to do well. Second, on the dog's first day, I'll either pick up that dog first or second so that they meet each new dog one at a time. And then I watch their body language and behavior for any signs of fear, any signs of aggression. So signs that the dog is feeling uncomfortable, things like being really stiff, um, having like a whale eye, which is where like the whites of the eyes are showing, having hackles up, which can sometimes mean the dog's uncomfortable. It can also mean they're excited. So things like that. And then as far as fear goes, watching for those fearful cowering, hesitancy types of behaviors and reacting appropriately. So I also will separate the dog if there are concerns. I'll separate the dog from the other dogs in the car, either in a crate or by putting them in on a tie down or in the front seat if I have to, um, if I'm feeling unsure. But typically because of all the screening I do, everything goes off without a hitch pretty well. All of that initial prep work up front really does sound like it cuts off a lot of this back end work as far as the the guesswork, right? You're trying to cut out as much guesswork as possible whenever you finally start putting them together. Exactly. You want to have an idea of what to expect. And and part of I know what what you're passionate about is teaching force free care and, and, and dog care. So how does that play into your pack walks when you've got them all out? Yeah, so I use um, positive reinforcement methods to manage all the dogs in my care. Um, so praise, treats, toys, things like that. Um, I just I like to have a positive bond with all the dogs that I walk with, and I don't want to use fear and intimidation or hurt a dog that I'm watching. Um, I want the dogs to be coming out and having a great time, but also for them to have structure. Um, when you have that amount of dogs in a group, you can't just have like a free-for-all. You do need to have control of them, especially when you're sharing trails with other people and other dogs. You don't want to have six off-leash dogs running up to a toddler and their mom walking on the trail. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you do need to have control of your your dogs. So every single hike that I do, I incorporate training into um, recall is what we do the most. Recall practice all day long, just building that relationship and building the expectation of if they listen and do what I ask, they get a reward. And if they don't, there are consequences. Just because you're force-free doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It's just they're not like physical corrections or something like that. We do things like timeouts or loss of resources, uh, things like that. Hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, most importantly there, you are being extremely vigilant and constantly I don't know if you're constantly doing corrections or just watching uh, and trying to keep up a step or two ahead of where the dogs are. Yeah. So I don't really do like corrections. Um, I mean, I'll do like a verbal no or something like that. Um, But usually I don't have to. The dogs listen really well. Um, Most of the dogs I take are really motivated by food. Um, And then 
you do have to be watching constantly what's happening up on the trail and all the dogs as I take each new dog are trained on the protocols of like what behavior is expected of them so things like when we see a bike coming on the trail all the dogs know that means we're gonna all move over and we're gonna sit while we wait for that bike to go by we do the same thing when we see other dogs or people just because I don't want the dogs running up and jumping on them and we do share public trails and have to get a permit for it. We don't want to lose access to that. So we have to be really careful about not offending anyone on the trail. Um, so just teaching those basic protocols so the dogs know what to expect is really important. And that's something that I do with every new dog that comes into the pack. Sure. And, and the, the trails that you have, are there a, just a handful of them that you kind of rotate through? Or are there just one or two that you always go to? Um, it depends. I'm really fortunate. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, just north of San Francisco, and we have a lot of trails and open space available to commercial dog walkers. Mm. We do have to get permits. Um, I don't even know how many trails there are. There's so many. There's <laughs> tons and tons of trails. I do have favorites, of course, um, that I like to use, and I like to use for different situations. So, for example, I have a puppy right now, and I just want a nice wide trail so that when we see bikes and people, I have plenty of time to get her over so that she can learn to sit when people are going past, which is a lot easier for her when it's wider than if they're coming by at really close quarters. It's also great right now because of coronavirus, we have extra space. Um, so I have a few favorites, but we do have a lot of places to choose from, including beaches, which is really nice. Yeah. That, that, that wide open space that allows you to, you to also be able to stay on top of all of those movements, but just allows the dogs to get out there and, and, and run around like crazy. Right. Yeah. And I do also like trails where we can see what's coming yeah. um, in advance. So I just have a little bit of time. You exclusively do off the leash walking, which to me kind of gives me a mild panic attack. Uh, just that's, that's something that um, we've only done very sparingly with a, only a handful full of, full of dogs. So that's not something that I have a lot of experience with. So I, you've mentioned a few of them, but what kind of other considerations for safe off-leash dog walking uh, do you have or you would recommend people think about? Sure. Yeah. So it's really common for people to worry about that. And a lot of dog walkers don't want to let dogs off-leash. And that's totally fine. It is not for everyone. Um, there definitely are risks involved anytime that you take a dog off the leash. So it's something you want to be really careful about and carefully consider. Um, and the first thing you should do is make sure that you have insurance that covers off-leash dog walks. Mm -hmm. um, well, many insurance companies do not. So um, make sure you have one that does before you go and let someone's dog off-leash. And then I never just take a dog out and let them free the first time I meet them ever. So first, I want to build up a relationship with them. And also during the screening process, I ask questions about the dog you know, does the owner take the dog off leash? Has the dog ever run away? Things like that. Like if it's a dog that has a history of running off and running away and not listening, I'm not going to take that dog off leash. Hmm. So um, I do work on recall, but if it's a dog that's taken off, I don't do that. I don't want to take the risk of getting a dog hit by a car or something like that. So um, I do use safe locations. So they're not near roads. So a dog would need to run pretty far to get to a road, but still I like to err on the side of caution. So we do the screening process and then the first few walks, I just want the dog to get to know me and the other dogs and get to know the routine. So I do not let them off leash. And then I start them out on the long line. Even if the owner says that they have excellent recall, um, I still start them out on a long line and I use positive reinforcement. We use lots of treats, lots of praise, and we practice their recall in all sorts of situations. So 
we walk out on open space trails. We see a lot of bikes. We see a lot of hikers. Sometimes we see wildlife and I need to make sure that they're not going to chase deer or something like that. Um, so it takes a lot of practice on the long line. I build up a rapport with the dog and get a good idea of their response. And if they're responding really well on the long line with all these distractions, I will start to wean them off and I will let them drag the long line. And we do the same thing, keep practicing. I just have that safety of being able to step on that line if I need to. And then eventually we wean them off that completely. So it's kind of a slow and careful process just to ensure that I'm not letting a dog off that's going to run off. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, in in that process of saying, okay, like we're going to do all of this screening, and then we're going to take it really, really slow, and we're going to start building this. And as you mentioned, they're building that trust, building that relationship with the dog. Is is sounds like it's your primary focus through each of these little steps. Yeah, exactly, and just getting an idea of the dog's temperament and making sure that everything the owner has told you is matching up. Because sometimes dogs act differently with their owner than they do with me. They tend to actually get away with more with their owner <laughs> than they oh. do with me, actually, <laughs> which works as a bonus for me. But um, that's because I have a lot of experience training and most dog owners don't. Um, but it's just a, a constant thing. And some dogs will be let off leash faster than others, just depending on how they respond. And I've been doing this for a long time. So I feel pretty confident letting dogs off if they're doing really well. But if I have doubts, I always err on the side of caution because I would never want to let somebody's dog run off and be injured or something or lost. Yeah, I mean, that really is like way up there in the number one things that we don't want to have happen. And to do that, you take all of these precautions. And I, I'm sure you may, people are listening going, that seems like really overkill. Um, but it, it's really not because you're, you're trying to keep you and the dog safe, too. Uh, every time you go out. Yeah, right. If a dog runs off and you don't know where they are, like you don't know what they're doing. They could be eating poisonous stuff off the trail. They like getting rolling around in a patch of foxtails, which I don't know if you have those there, but they get in the dog's nose and eyes and they're horrible. You know, they could be harassing other people on the trail. So it is, it's really important. So have you ever had to retrieve a dog that's run out? And, and what what was that like? Yeah, I have. I've been doing this for 13 years. So it has happened. One time I had a dog um, run back to her house, which was probably half a mile from where the trail was, which was really scary. Um, come to find out the dog had been stung by yellow jackets on that trail. The owner had not told me. Um, and I bent down to pick up, up, scoop up a poop (laughs) and saw her little Aussie butt running away. (laughs) Um, and I'm calling her. Um, luckily she just went to her house, but yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And, um, everything was fine. She lived just down the street and it was a quiet neighborhood, but it can happen. So that's one of the reasons I, you know, it is not for everyone. Fortunately, knock on wood, I have never lost a dog, had the dog like run off. We didn't know where they were. I couldn't find them, but I attribute that to all the screening that I do. And that was kind of a freak thing that with that one dog. But anytime you let dogs off leash, there is a risk. If, I mean, I had been walking that dog five days a week for, I think, three years. When that happened, she had never run off before. So you never wow. know. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it just, just goes to show that that vigilance and, and keeping those kind of things in mind, like you have to be on guard for those kind of things uh, and, and have procedures in place for what do you do? Right. Yeah. And it's really important that you can stay calm if that does happen and have a clear head and take 
steps to rectify the situation as best as possible without, you know, having a breakdown because it's really stressful if that happens. Well, yeah, because you have four or five other dogs that are also off leash that you have to also care for while you've got this one running away. Exactly. Yeah. While you're out there, you're walking and you're getting prepped. What kind of gear do you take out on the trail to keep you, the dog, safe? I have biothane leashes, with that, which I love. You can wipe them down and clean them. Um, I always carry a citronella spray um, called Spray Shield. I use that in emergencies if there were a um, fight or something like that. That's the only time I use it. I did use it on a coyote once. There are coyotes where we walk. So I did use it on a oh coyote when I was charging my group one time. Um, lots of trees, bait bag, um, lots of poop bags, go through a lot of those. And then I have a whole bunch of stuff in my car, like grooming wipes, brushes, um, all my client keys. Oh, I love the tailgate dumpster that Kurgo makes, um, to put poop bags in when you're out hiking on a trail, when there's no, uh, garbage cans. I love those. I have a couple of those too. Hmm. Yeah, because that was my next question is, um, is how do you pack all that poop out? Uh, and if you've got a dumpster that attaches to your car, it sounds like that's pretty nice. Yeah, they're pretty small. So I have a couple of them. And then uh, I also have the poop bag dispenser from Earth Rated, which has a little hook on the back that you can hook the bags on. Mm. So if you tie them together, you can get quite a lot of them on there. You don't have to carry them. So it's a lifesaver. Yeah. <laughs> now, how long are you taking the dogs out for walks? Yeah, our hikes are... 45 minutes to an hour, but that doesn't include travel time. Um, I try to keep my pickups to 30 minutes for pickup and 30 minutes for drop off total. So they're out of the house for two to three hours usually. Being gone for so long, how do you adapt your walk plans with things like inclement weather or or bad air quality or those kind of things? I go over all of that when I do my meet and greets with, with my clients that they're aware in advance, but I do shorten hikes if needed. Um, Luckily, the climate where I live is very mild. We live right by the ocean. So we don't have too many hot days. But if we do, we do things like walk at places where it's shady, shorten the walk. Um, Clients know like if it's really hot, like over 90 degrees, we may only stay out for 20 minutes or something like that. I kind of watch how the dogs are doing. And if they look like they're starting to get too warm, we go back. Um, or we'll just hang out under a tree in the shade and we'll practice obedience commands instead of actually doing a hike. Um, I carry water. I give them water in the car after. But any type of like bad weather, so rainy days, hail, things like that, we'll just shorten the hike. And the clients know and they understand and they appreciate that I'm not going to keep their dog out when it's miserable weather out. What I like there is that you also are saying, well, an alternative to the full walk is we'll also use some of this time to do obedience. And and really, that's not something that I had even considered of, of, okay, we're not going to be doing the full walk, but we're still going to spend this time together and and work on recall and all these basic principles. I I think that's really cool. Yeah, we'll do that. And also we'll do what I call a sniffing walk, which is like a stroll. We go really slow and I let the dog sniff anything and everything that they want. Um, We don't cover a lot of ground, but they love it. And it's great mental stimulation for them too. I think that's probably the experience that most of us have when we take dogs on walks is that they just want to sniff everything and we're kind of fighting them on that to keep them going. So Yeah, they know. <laughs> I let them sniff, but they also know when I say, okay, guys, let's go. It's time to go. So Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've walked several dogs where you make it about five feet and you're like, okay, well, 30 minutes later, I think it's time to try and head back because, you know, oh. they just... <laughs> 
Yeah, believe me, I have beagles. I understand. Right. Yeah, I was going to say you you wouldn't know that. <laughs> yeah, my client dogs are way better than my beagles. I spoil them, so oh. yeah, we'll. <laughs> I know that routine well. Sure. <laughs> uh, thinking about in the pet care industry, what kind of unique challenges do dog walkers face compared to other forms of of care that people are providing? I think one of the biggest challenges dog walkers have right now is just the fact that the general public doesn't realize that there's a big difference between like a qualified professional dog walker and somebody who's just walking dogs for extra cash, like a kid in the neighborhood or something like that. Professional dog workers, walkers are actually really skilled and they're licensed, they're insured, the things like that. They won't flake out on you like a neighborhood kid's going to be like, oh, I'm going to hang out with my friends. Sorry, I can't walk your dog. <laughs> um, which I'm sure pet sitters experience that as well. And they know a lot about dog behavior and management. So they can kind of look ahead and scan like I do with my packs and see if there's any issue coming and prevent problems before they start, prevent any altercations with other dogs and just know how to handle unexpected things and how to read dog behavior and know signs of fear or stress that a dog is having and how they should react to it. And they know what to do in an emergency. They are certified in pet first aid and CPR. So it's you're getting a lot different experience if you hire a professional dog walker than just a regular person who's doing it for a little extra cash. And I think a lot of the members of the general public don't really know that. Um, and it's something that we need to do more education on so that um, general public is just aware of that. Yeah, I was just about to say that it's it, really hard to get across that kind of experience and what it actually gets you as a client of 20 years experience versus two weeks experience in in the business like that's hard to get across in an ad or sometimes even on a website is you're so you're having to do this heavy lifting of of educating 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 right yeah i have spent a lot of time on my marketing and marketing message to get that message across because as any dog walker, I'm still a working dog walker as well as a business coach. So I'm in the trenches and I know how it is to have to compete with other companies that are charging way less than what you can, especially if you're a solo walker. Having really good marketing, like I charge a lot more than other dog walkers and I still have a wait list and get lots of inquiries. And I chalk that up to a lot of the marketing that I do that kind of communicates that message to the public that why they should pay more for what I offer rather than someone who's got a couple weeks experience. It is an uphill battle. Someone goes, Oh, walking the dog. Uh, well, I, the owner do that, but I don't want to. So why would I pay this, this exorbitant price to do that and having to go, well, <laughs> this is all the stuff that you're getting, like in trying to do those, those value ads and all these assurance. And as you mentioned, like the backgrounds and training and the guarantees that you're able to provide. Uh, but yeah, that, 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 hurdle seems like that that's kind of hard to overcome. Yeah. And one of the things that pack walkers can do is like we offer a service that's different than solo walkers. And a lot of pet owners, they have one dog or they have two dogs maybe, and they can't get their dog out in like this social experience unless they go to the dog park. And a lot of people don't like going to dog parks. They've had altercations with other dogs there and they'll really relate to the idea of getting their dog out with other dogs that have been screened for appropriate play with other dogs. So just focusing on things like that, especially if you're a pack walker, is a great way to do it because that's something that the owner can't provide on their own. 
yeah, really going after that. I mean, that's a that's a problem that they want solved and being able to clearly articulate, I will solve that for you, right? I, I can do that. Exactly. Yep. So on the conversation of, of clients, I am curious if you remember your, your very first client. I do. I do. Uh, my first client was a Bernese Mountain Dog named Coda. And uh, they found me on Craigslist. This was back in 2006 when I first started. And I used to advertise on Craigslist. Um, he was a great dog. And he's like just the kind of dog and client I was looking for. So I knew when I got him that I was doing something right. <laughs> I still didn't know what, the, what exactly I was doing, but I did something right there. Right. So he was a great dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I know Megan and I had a very similar experience for our, our, our first client. It was like, wow, you're like really amazing. Like what am, I don't even know what I'm doing fully right now. And you're awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he was totally like that. He was an awesome dog. How about your most impactful client? That would probably have to be this yellow lab that I walked named Abby. We gentle, best yellow lab. Um, I started walking her when she was a year and a half old and I walked her twice a week for 13 years until Whoa. she passed away. She, so she grew up with me and my pack. And like, I saw her owners go from being, you know, a couple moving and having two kids. It was just amazing getting to work for them for so many years. And just, she was like my other dog, you know, as are many of the dogs that I walked because I do walk them for many years, but Abby was the longest client I ever had. So and it was over 13 years that I walked her. Wow. You talk about being a part of somebody's family, caring for their same dog for 13 years. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard about Time to Pet? Dan from NYC Pooch has this to say. Time to Pet has been a total game changer for us. It helped us streamline many aspects of our operation, from scheduling and communication to billing and customer management. Uh, we actually tested other pet sitting softwares in the past, but these other solutions were clunky and riddled with problems. Everything in Time to Pet has been so well thought out. It's intuitive, feature-rich, and it's always improving. If you are looking for new pet sitting software for your business, give Time to Pet a try. As a listener of Pet Sitter Confessional, you'll get 50% off your first three months when you sign up at timetopet.com slash confessional. Since you've been in the industry for 20 years now, uh, how has it changed? Well, I'd say one of the biggest things that's changed is technology. Back when I first started, well, I started working in tech kennels and stuff in 1997. And then I started my dog walking business in 2006. And even in 2006, like social media advertising wasn't really a thing. Like, I don't think I joined Facebook until I don't think I knew about it until like maybe a year later or something like that. Um, and Instagram was not a thing. So the way that we market has changed a lot since then. And it's made it a lot easier. I used to have to pound the pavement, and like go to pet stores and drop off cards and flyers. And now I just post social media from home. It's great. So, um, <laughs> That's one of the things. And then um, let's see, a, there's a lot more positive reinforcement and force-free training methods that are happening now, which is a great thing to see. When I first started out working in kennels, shock collars are really popular. And so were, you know, a lot of aversive training methods that were not my favorite things. It's been really nice to just see that evolve and see the members of the public just kind of pick up on that and start changing the way they do things. Um, and just that awareness that dog walking exists as a service even mm. like 
people didn't like know that that was even a thing. Like their dogs would stay at home for nine, 10 hours a day while they went to work and maybe have access to the backyard and that was it. So um, just that knowledge that it is a thing and that it's something that you can do for your dog to make their life better. So all positive things really that I've noticed. That the biggest change, I mean, it's kind of, you know, you're saying one of your first, your first client, you found off Craigslist and it's kind of even thinking about that going, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know anybody who uses Craigslist these days. I can't uh, remember <laughs> the last time I did. I like it probably in 2006 That's when right. I started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, it is so much easier. We're able to, to cast a wider net and, and really, really target people. And then, you know, when you mentioned there that those force free methods have really started increasing in popularity. Why do you think that is in, in the general public? I think just through education and like popularity of like Victoria Stillwell's show on Animal Planet um, was really popular. And I think that, that helps spread awareness that we don't have to use all these forceful techniques to train our dogs. We can use gentler me- methods instead. And um, most dog walk or, or dog owners love that. Like, no one wants to have to jerk their dog around. It's not fun for you. It's not fun for the dog. So um, being able to just do training that's fun that your dog enjoys, I think just being aware that that's something that is effective and works to spread and everyone um, is kind of changing their mind shift that way a little bit, a lot more since it was definitely back in the 90s. Yeah, it really sounds like just this overall awareness of people can provide better care for their pets they still want their pets around and they've always had their pets around but as a society it's kind of been like oh we can be doing things a little better we can provide these this care by taking having them go on pack walks or these daycares and use these better methods so it's just been this as you mentioned this overall awareness this increase in awareness of a better way to do things yeah and you'll see you see that in the whole pet industry with like better dog food, better toys, all kinds of things that are a lot better than they were back then. Yeah, which is which is something as pet sitters in 2020 to be really thankful for all of that work from pet sitters in years past that have that put in that and to know that you know we still have education to do, but we've come such a long way from, you know, 10 20 years ago. Yeah, definitely. And and thinking about longevity in this industry that seems to have a pretty high turnover for a lot of people. So what would you say is the key or, or something that people can work on for, for staying in the game for a long time? Yeah, for me, it's been like constantly improving my business and evolving with time. Um, I made a lot of mistakes when I first started out, as I'm sure anyone does when they're starting their business. That's one of the reasons I am offering coaching now to help people avoid those mistakes that I made so they can kind of have some faster progress. Mm -hmm. But um, just really keying in on what those clients' needs are and gearing your marketing towards solving an issue that they have and continuing to learn and improve in everything that you do so that you can have the best service and just rolling with the punches. I mean, especially now with COVID, a lot of dog workers have been hit hard by cancellations and things like that. So just going through that, I went through with the recession also right after I started my business in 2006. And, you know, I didn't have very many clients and I ended up getting a part-time job for a little bit at a pet store where I could refer myself for dog walking back then so that I could make it through that. So, you know, you've got to get scrappy sometimes. 
to get yourself through. And once you're established, things are a lot easier. I've handled the the COVID situation a lot better than I did back then in 2006. But just being able to kind of pivot what you're doing so that you can get through tough situations is really important. Yeah, I mean, we just finished talking about how the the mindset and awareness of pet care industry changed over 20 years. And that means a lot of people had to pivot and change how they operated during that time. And even more so in times like a financial crisis or COVID, needing to change up services and, and how you meet those needs. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important. So how has COVID impacted you and your business? Yeah, so I have policies in place that protect me pretty well from client loss. However, if I have clients, I do have clients that were effect, affected financially. So I'm not going to hold them to keeping their dog on if it's not something they can afford. So I did lose a few clients. So I actually updated my marketing message, went through my uh, website. I was off work for about eight weeks. So I took that time to kind of look at my business, decide, was there anything that I wanted to change? What could I do to better attract people to my website? Um, and I realized my marketing could be stronger. And I've changed my marketing message a couple times since I've been in business. Um, the first time I realized it was after I'd been in business five or six years. And I realized I was just advertising as a dog walker. And I should have been advertising that I was a dog hiking company because that's what I was doing. But I was hmm. just calling it dog walks, not dog hikes, which I was like, oh gosh, how, how silly. Why didn't I think of that before? So I changed everything to hikes and hiking adventures at that time. And I saw my inquiries from new clients just skyrocket. So during this, I realized I needed to put more emphasis on all the training that I do with the dogs. So I kind of revamped my website and did that. And again, despite COVID, I have seen my new client inquiries skyrocket. And I again have a wait list of dogs waiting to get in. Wow. And what's so cool about that is you didn't change everything whole cloth, right? You you looked at where your strengths were and figured out a better way to communicate that and then promoted maybe some things that you were already doing, just kind of emphasize those a little more. Yep, that's exactly what I did. I just made sure that my marketing message was really clear that when people come to the the website at first glance, they're like, okay. This, per, this this dog walker is different than all these other dog walkers. And it gives them a reason to choose me and gives them a reason to pay the premium rates that I charge as well. Because yeah, I think when a lot of people think of, oh, I've got to pivot or I've got to change what I'm doing, they immediately think of, and, and I know this comes to my mind, is what kind of services do we need to add? What kind of services do we need to cut? What all this stuff. And, and I, this step of going, well, what are my strengths and how do I let people know what those strengths are? Uh, before I go changing everything, the, the whole business. And such a, a, as you mentioned earlier, with the, the reinforcement, like that's such a positive outlook on the situation to, to make those changes. Yeah. And it's something that a lot of dog walkers are not doing and that they can easily spend some time, especially if they are slow right now, to work on and to improve on so that they can get more inquiries in. You mentioned about policies a little bit. You have a, a mindset that policies can save our sanity and prevent burnout. So could you talk through what that means and, and how people can start implementing that? Yeah. So one of the things I learned working at dog daycare was like I was so burnt out from that job. Like I was working over 50 hours a week and sometimes we'd have to spend the night at work because the overnight person would call out sick. And I did not want to have that with my dog walking business at all. So I set up policies from the very beginning and 
The first one was setting business days and hours. And I didn't want to work weekends. So I don't work weekends. And that's one of the great things about dog walking. It would be really hard to do that with pet sitting because that seems to be, you know, weekends and holidays are really, really popular times um, for pet sitters. But for dog walkers, um, depending on who your clientele are, you don't have to work weekends and holidays if you don't want to. Um, I target working professionals. So they have weekends and holidays off anyway, and they walk their own dogs. So I set those business hours and I stick to them. So when I'm closed, I'm closed. (laughs) So I don't respond to emails. I don't respond to text messages, phone calls. And I can't say that I do it 100%, say like 95% of the time. (laughs) Um, I'm not, nobody's perfect, but um, it's really important to have that boundary of, okay, I'm working now. I'm not working now especially when you're doing office work and stuff from home and you're not out in the field actually walking dogs. You just don't want to burn yourself doing that, burn yourself out doing that. And also I take vacations and I see so many dog walkers that never take vacations. And they say, oh, I can never go on vacation. You can totally go on vacation. You just need to plan in advance. And I'm a solo walker. I have had employees in the past, but now I'm solo and I love it. And I still take vacations. I just took a week vacation off. And I have no issues. My clients understand. They know that I need vacations. And usually when I let them know I'm going on vacation, they say, great, you deserve a break. So making sure that you take vacations, that business hours are both really important to prevent burnout. And as far as like saving your sanity goes, have a cancellation policy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because uh, I know uh, cancellations can kill you financially. and be really frustrating at the same time Mm -hmm. so make sure you have something set up for cancellations so that you know if you show up to walk a dog and the dog's not there and they didn't tell you you should be getting paid for your time um you shouldn't be giving them a credit that's not your fault if they didn't tell you i also actually limit the number of cancellations that clients can make each year Because I'm a solo dog walker, I only have a limited number of dogs that I can take every day. If people are canceling constantly, that really cuts into how much income you're making. Mm. When you're a small solo walker, you can't afford to lose, you know, $1,000 a month because of cancellations. Like that's, (laughs) that's not acceptable. So just setting up a policy that will help you with that, either limiting how many cancellations the client can make per year, after which they still can cancel, but they have to pay for the walk or going to like a flat rate policy if they pay a certain rate every month and kind of like a gym membership, whether you you use it or lose it. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to give refunds for that. And then learning to say no, you know, a lot of people have trouble with that. They want to please their clients, which I get it. I do too, but you've sometimes you've got to say no. So if someone calls and say they're five minutes outside my service area, I tell them, no, I'm sorry, you're outside my service area. And they're like, it's only five minutes. I'm like, yes, but that's, five minutes each way. That's 10 minutes times however many days in the month. Like I'm working, you know, three extra hours and I don't get paid extra for that. So, I mean, that's not how I say it to the client, (laughs) but (laughs) that's how I think about it in my head. It makes it easier to say no. So if you have trouble saying no, that's something definitely have to work on if you're going to be solo and you're going to handle it yourself and not hire like a manager specifically to do that for you. But just being able to enforce your policies and I know when I first started out, I kind of just was like, okay, well, you know, when I used to work at my other job, I had to enforce the policies. I can do the same thing. 
as my own business. So it's possible you just got to get in that mindset that, you know, I have the policies and I'm going to stick to them and I set them up for a reason. Yeah. Well, and just, I mean, copy and paste is so easy. If you have it in your policies, just copy and paste it to say no, instead of, you know, that way you're not having to make it up on the spot every single time, right? If you have to say it one time, put it in a policy so you don't have to ever say it again. And and it kind of takes that burden off of your shoulders. And I remind clients too, like I'll send out email reminders of policies. Every time a client cancels, I say, great, thanks for canceling. Just a reminder, you know, we have, you have this many credits per year. That way there's no surprises. No one gets upset. Mm-hmm. We've already gone over all the policies at the meet and greet. And then I go over them again and again and again with them. So it makes it really easy. And I will say on the cancellation policy, yeah, it is, I, that is so crucial. And it's kind of one of those, I don't know if, if you get this too, it's kind of like one of those guilty pleasures of when somebody cancels, it sucks. But if they do it within the cancellation policy, you're still getting paid to not work and uh, you can go on and do other stuff. Sometimes they're so foundational in having the business. Yeah, it's essential because if you don't have one, it will drive you nuts. So Yes. <laughs> You touched on this a little bit earlier on how things have changed uh, since the the late 90s was technology and the role of social media. What role does that play in the social media play in the pet care business? Yeah, I love social media for spreading brand awareness is like the number one thing I use it for. I also use it for a perk for my existing clients. Um, But it's a great way, especially Instagram. I'm a big Instagram user to get local followers and engage with people in your area. And it's really easy to do because you can just search hashtags. You can search by location tags and look for pictures of dogs and comment on them and engage with those people. A lot of time they'll check out your Instagram feed and they'll start following you. And then as long as you are posting like helpful and relevant content, then um, they'll continue to engage with you and see your posts, which means when they need to hire someone, they're going to think of you because they'll be like, oh, there was that dog walker on Instagram. Who was that? Oh, yeah. They're going to go back and and find you and then hire you. So it's a great way to market. It does take some time. Uh, I recently launched a program called Templates for Pet Pros, which is part of School for Dog Walkers, where I do 10 new social media graphics every month um, for pet businesses, not just for dog walkers, it's for any dog-focused business, their dog daycare, pets that are anything like that, um, just to build engagement. It takes a lot of time for mm-hmm. to actually like sit down and be like, okay, what the heck do I post about? <laughs> and then I've got to make like pretty graphics that look nice and match my brand. So I recently started doing that, which has been a lot of fun and has had a really good response. And it's a, a great program for people who don't have the time or aren't sure what to post. And they're just templates for Canva. So if you're not familiar with Canva, canva.com. It's a great resource. Create your own graphics. We use Canva for a lot of stuff that we do. And we are not graphic designers by any stretch of the imagination, like not even close. And five minutes working in Canva. And I'm like, whoa, like, do I have skills? No, it's just doing it all for me. But I'll take some of the credit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's easy to use. Oh, and it's free. The Canva is free. The templates aren't free. (laughs) The Canva is free. So I yeah, there was there aren't a lot of dog related ones. And so I, I make dog-related ones with fun tips and stuff like that. So we've mentioned it several times. And so I want to let you talk about School for Dog Walkers and who is it for and, and why you decided to start it. Sure. Yeah. So School for Dog Walkers is an online membership program where I offer business coaching 
for dog walkers, anyone from brand new dog walkers to people who have been in business for a while, but they're struggling to get enough clients or reach their business goals, or they're getting really burnt out and they just need help getting their business so that it's working better for them. And I specialize in helping force free solo pack walkers to start and grow their business. And um, we set it up so that they can stay solo if that's something that they want to do, but also set it up so that they have systems and processes so that if they want to expand in the future, they can. And the reason I started is because other dog workers kept asking me for business help. And I realized there was a need for this in the market. And I just started um, a blog. School for Dog Walkers started off as a blog. And there's over 50 blog posts on there now, I believe. So I just started giving out like free content and kind of seeing if there was interest in it. And sure enough, there was. So I decided to launch the membership program. And I just love helping other dog walkers. I want to make people aware that like dog walking can be a real career. And it's a, it's a great career. Like I, right, right now I work part-time doing dog walking. And I, if I wanted to do that as my sole income, in San Francisco Bay Area, I could because it's very lucrative, it's very fun, and I love it. And I just want to help other people have that same experience if they want. Well, yeah, I think a lot of us start with this passion and for pets and for doing for taking care of them. And sometimes it we we, we ourselves have trouble guiding and focusing it into something that's going to work for us that can earn us a living that can so that we can treat it like an actual job, like an actual business. And so, you know, hearing that you saw that and went, well, I can help those people. I can come alongside them and give them some tips and and start this program so that they can do that. They can go off and do what they love and do it well. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's all about. It's all about helping people do that while maintaining that work-life balance so that they don't get burnout. Which is really all all too common as as we've discussed. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thinking about maybe dog walkers, but also clients too. So there's kind of two answers to this. What's one thing you wish more people knew about the life of a dog walker? Going back to what I said earlier, as far as clients go, I would say, you know, there there's a big difference between hiring a skilled professional and a neighborhood kid. As far as what people who are interested in being dog walkers or dog walkers, what they should know probably be, first of all, dog walking is a great career. It's a real career that you can have. So if this is something you're passionate about and you love hanging out with dogs and you want to have a career as a dog walker, you absolutely can. You just need to take the right step to make everything work for you so that it's profitable. And just that it's not also just playing with puppies all day. (laughs) So it is actual work. So you do have to be out there in inclement weather, in rain, in cold, in heat. And um, it's not all fun all the time. I had a poop bag explode all over my pants one time, for example. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, for the but there are those days where you're out there and the weather is perfect and you're watching your pack run and play and you're like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe I'm getting paid for this. It is work. It's a lot of work can be really enjoyable um, if you have those policies, if you have these things in place that can allow you to enjoy those times. Definitely. When you're not out there doing the hikes with the dog, what kind of things do you like to do for your downtime for some self-care? I love being out in nature, which ties in with me being 
a dog hiker and why I chose that for my business. Um, So I love going up to my family cabin and hanging out there. I just did that over the 4th of July holiday. It was so nice and relaxing where I basically hike my own dogs (laughs) instead of um, client dogs. Um, I'm really into photography. Um, My my spoiled beagles have their own Instagram account um, at Little Hound Dog on Instagram if you're interested in checking it out. I'm really into doing photography with them. I love reading. Right now I'm reading a really great business book actually called Everything is Figureoutable by Marie Forleo, which is a great book to be reading right now, especially with all the challenges we have going on. And then just being with my dogs. We compete in nose work when COVID is not happening. (laughs) We do uh, nose work competitions, which is a lot of fun also. How did you get into pet photography? I actually started doing it just when I was a puppy raiser hmm. to document, you raise the puppy for for about a year and a half to two years. And then if they graduate and go on to someone else, I wanted to have like a photo album, like a, this is back when scrapbooking was in, <laughs> <laughs> when I had my first puppy that I was puppy raising. Yeah. I wanted to do that. And I realized that I really enjoyed doing it. And it kind of evolved from there. Well, and I, I think of, of, of the role that photography plays in the, in the business of a, of a pet sitter and of a dog walker, right? We're, we're taking lots of pictures and, and sharing those um, on social media. Uh, and so were those, was those skills that you just developed over time or did you seek out classes uh, or, or get you know, outside help? Um, for a long time, I just practiced and practiced on my own. I eventually did take some courses. I took a, like a regular photography class at a, at a high school. Hmm. Um, and then there is a great uh, program right now for pet photographers called Hair of the Dog Academy. They have a podcast, actually, which is great. And they have a huge Facebook group. So if, if pet photography is something you're interested in, I, you could check into that. It's a really great top-notch program for pet photographers. I think it's just called... There's a couple of pet photography podcasts. Like there's, uh, I think hers is called Hair of the Dog Academy. Um, it's Nicole Begley. Okay. There's also another one called the pet photographers club which is a great podcast as well yeah that that was the one i was thinking of okay if you want to dive really off the deep end and and learn all about that those those two podcasts are really really cool and i just love hearing them talk about all the ins and outs and and really kind of you know geek out on gear and all sorts of stuff with them it's fascinating to listen to yeah, I subscribe to both of those. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to every episode. So. Jess, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and and sharing all of this. Uh, it's I just am, am blown away by by everything, and, and and again, so thankful for you taking the time out of your day to come on and share this with us. Um, but I know we just barely scratched the surface, um, especially for the the school for dog walkers stuff. So if people want to go and learn more about that and follow you, um, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. First, um, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Let me give you some info. So the website is schoolfordogwalkers.com and you can find the blog there also. And I've actually put together some resources for your listeners um, with some free downloads on screening questions for off-leash dogs and social media post ideas. And they can also get the Dog Walker's Guide to a Profitable Business, 10 Tips to Attract Your Ideal Client and Avoid Burnout. And they can get four free of Canva templates if they want to try those out too. And to get those, they can just go to schoolfordogwalkers.com forward slash PSC for Pet Sitter Confessional. And 
You can also follow School for Dog Walkers on Instagram and Facebook. It's at School for Dog Walkers in both of those places. And I also have a Facebook group, the School for Dog Walkers community. And if you want to follow my two beagles on Instagram, their account is at Little Hound Dog. Yeah. And, and everyone should go follow them. They're adorable. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I will have, have links for those in the show notes. And those resources that you put together are just, are just wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm happy to offer them. I hope that people enjoy them. Again, uh, Jess, it's been a real pleasure having you on. And we hope to be able to have you on again soon. Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much. After my conversation with Jess, I am seriously thinking about ways that Megan and I can provide pack walks in our area. I don't know if we'll ever be brave enough to offer off-leash pack walks, but I think that's something that we can and probably should be working towards. It sounds like it's a really great opportunity, and Jess's clients absolutely love it. And I really had three big takeaways from today's conversation. It's recall, recall, recall. If you can work on something with the pets that you're caring for, work on recall. And then when you are bringing in new pets, to take it so slowly and really work on building and strengthening that relationship and that bond between the two of you. And third and finally, we can't say it enough, is take time for yourself. Again, that seems so weird to think about considering what 2020 has been like so far. But don't forget these moments. And remember, it's okay to take time off. Next year, when we get busy again, remember, it's okay to take that time off and make sure that you are okay. We have so much in store for this year and moving forward. So make sure you never miss a beat by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Petsitter Confessional. You can also check out our website, PetsitterConfessional.com. And we have a way to sign up for our weekly newsletter. We use this newsletter to provide extended information for each of our episodes that we send out, as well as giving a breakdown on recent things happening in pet care and our thoughts on that. Again, you can sign up for that newsletter at PetsitterConfessional.com. 